Hello, Potters, and welcome back to, is it episode six? <laughs> this is going to be a struggle to remember this stuff, because like I've said in previous episodes, I have terrible memory, so if I end up losing track of what episode I'm on, I apologize. But I do believe it's episode six? Let me think. One and two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, and today we're reading... Okay, so six. So today, <laughs> we're reading chapters 11 and 12. Yesterday's episode was a bit long, but that was because a lot happened in um, yesterday's episode. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I might have to go through the chapters and like kind of skim just so I can remember... I had to do that yesterday because I have such bad memory. I have to see, you know, I have to make sure I'm, <laughs> like, giving a good enough recap. Um, just so we can refresh our memory. Um, so, starting with chapter 9, um, Rowan and Lark are off on their little adventure out through Eden for the second time. Um, and... They they take the auto loop, which is kind of like a... I would assume it's like a monorail. I don't really know if auto loops actually do exist, but in my brain, I'm kind of thinking like monorail type thing. Um, so, or just like a train. Um, so they're riding the auto loop, and um, Lark takes Rowan to this one, like, club... Yeah, this club, and like, you know, they sit there and they listen to this one guy talk, and eventually they all start arguing, and then like a few people get in a fight, and then they leave. So, and then Lark takes Rowan to this laser tag. I swear, my watch goes off in li literally every single episode where I'm trying to record. Um, anyway. Then Lark takes Rowan to this um to this laser tag place. And you know, they're having fun there and Rowan wins like the baddie she is. Um <laughs> and basically they're just having this really fun night out in Eden, you know, Lark showing Rowan all of the fun places that they can go. And then eventually um Lark takes Rowan to this abandoned algae spire. Um, and then we get a little bit of Lark's backstory, you know, we learn how she used to live out in one of the Outer Circles, and as we know, the Outer Circles are the more, they're kind of the more poorer districts, I guess, you know, they're like, the people aren't really as civilized, you know, they don't have as much money, blah, 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 and the reason for that is probably because they aren't close to the center, which is their government. Um, so we learn about Lark and how she used to live in the Outer Circles with the rest of her family, and then one day her father discovered something, and this caused him to get, like, a better job in the government, and then they moved into the Circles. But her dad never told her what it was that he found, or, like, did. And then she says, when she asked him about it a few years later, that he just acted like he forgot. And, like, I don't know. He just is weird. <laughs> um, so, 
we get a little bit of Lark's backstory with some mystery to it. Um, you know, like, because we don't know what her dad found, but it must have been good in the capitals. The capital. <laughs> this is not the Hunger Games. The center. Sorry, I'm mixing up um, government play, like, governments in dystopian novels that start with C. My bad. The center, not the capital. Um, but anyway, he must have found something that was pretty good in the cap- <laughs> I swear. I literally was about to do it again. The center's eyes. And so this caused them to move into one of the inner circles. Um, and then- as they're talking about it, later, um, Lark is, like, pointing out the stars and the constellations and stuff to Rowan, and they start talking a little, and, like, it gets more personal, and then Lark and Rowan kiss. Eee! <laughs> That was like, that was my toned down reaction. Of course, I already know what's happening, so I'm not like surprised, but like you are surprised, so you have the right to ee. Um, anyway, um, and then in the very end of this chapter, um, Rowan is back home and she's, she fell asleep and then her mom shakes her awake and is like, you need to get up right now. And then... In chapter 10, her mom is, like, throwing her clothes and all of her belongings in these, like, plastic bags. And, like, she tells Rowan that they found out about her. But, like, they haven't found out about her necessarily, but they have found out that there's a second child, like, in this ring. Which is incredibly dangerous for Rowan. Um, so her mom is like, we have to burn your clothes, you know, we have to, like, get rid of your DNA and make sure there is no trace of you here. Because, you know, that would be bad for Rowan and that would also be bad for her family because they could all get killed, really. Um, and then, um, Rowan starts actually feeling guilty for her actions because up until this point she recognized the risk, but she really recognized the risk for herself and did not really think about what her family would go through if she got caught. Um, so, and then the theory pops in her head that Lark may have reported her to the authorities because Lark was the only person that she has talked to outside of her family that knows her secret. And so... Although the green shirt did see her, he was very weird. The situation with that was weird because he didn't really do anything. So if anybody were to tip off the authorities, Rowan thought it would be Lark. And obviously she didn't want to think that, but, you know, it was just a theory in the back of her head. So, um, and then her mom tells her that she's taking her to get her implants right away. And then she's gonna go directly to her new house. And then we find out that Rowan can never go back home. Like, ever. <laughs> um, you know, once she goes off to her new foster home, she can't return because it's just too dangerous. Um, and she says that she, like, Rowan can just never see any of her family again. 
Um, and it's like, she's obviously treated as more of like an object than a human being because, you know, like, obviously the foster people, the people that are fostering Rowan are not doing it just to do it, to be good people. They're doing it for the money. And so she realizes she's definitely being treated more as an object than as a person. Um, and then Ash comes in and Rowan figures out pretty quickly that her mom did not tell Ash all of the details. Like, Ash doesn't know that she can never return. Um, and so Ash and Rowan say goodbye. Um, they have this really emotional conversation, um, because this is their final goodbye, and the worst part is, is Ash doesn't even know it's their final goodbye. Um, and then, um, Ash is like, oh, but you have to go say bye to dad. Um, because Ash doesn't, Ash doesn't really know that Rowan and her dad don't have that great of a relationship. Um, so just for the sake of Ash, Rowan decides to go say goodbye to her dad. Um, and even then her dad doesn't even say goodbye. Um, so this is yet another example of their relationship being extremely rocky. Like, it is not, <laughs> it is not good. You could even say Rowan's got a bit of daddy issues per se, because her dad just clearly does not really care about her. So, and then we leave off at that. So, sorry, I took ten minutes to recap, good lord. <laughs> it was just, it was a lot to unpack. These past two chapters were a lot, so a lot happened. So, it took me a little bit to recap. But now, we're gonna get started with chapter 11. It feels so weird going out through the front door like a regular person. Mom glances at me like she's expecting me to be in shock at being outside for the first time in my life, so I do my best to look awestruck, to gawk at everything from what she imagines is a new perspective. She leads me to the small arched outbuilding that holds our tiny car. I've read that back before the eco-fail, cars were huge monsters that ate fossil fuels with a glutinous appetite. They actually burned gasoline with engines that ran by caging explosions. They were violent juggernauts that thundered through the world by the billions like vast migrating herds of some destructive creature. We still use the word car, but the few that exist in Eden, almost all in the inner circles, are nothing like their namesake. Our water-fueled vehicle is an elegant, deep pink egg with a shell so thin we can see the world around us in a rose-colored haze. It reminds me of Lark's glasses. We sit in comfort in the center, as Mom switches the controls to manual. Usually you tell it where you want to go, close your eyes, and listen to the music until you're there. Like the bots that zip through the city. Er, oops. Like the bots that zip through the city, Eden's cars are programmed to avoid collisions and are usually completely autonomous. Few people use the manual option. Of course, Mom doesn't want to have a record of where we're going. I have to keep it together, I think as I stare out at the fleeting scenery, the landscape that, after a couple of nights out, now seems almost familiar. It is slowly sinking in how serious this is. Not just that it's the end of everything I know. 
Suddenly, the danger feels real. Before, when I snuck out, it was scary, sure, but there was always an edge of excitement to it, like when I played Laser Hunt with Lark. Sneaking out was a challenge, and getting home again with adventure and experience under my belt was a victory. Now, though, someone is apparently actively hunting me. This just got real. I reach over and take my mom's hand, leaving her to drive with the other. She flashes me a quick, loving look, then fixes her eyes back on the road. It's about 3 a.m. and the streets are still virtually deserted. Even the clean bots are recharging. Still, she has to be careful. An accident would be disastrous. Out in the world at last, Mom says, squeezing my fingers as she maneuvers down one of the radial streets, away from the green, glowing eye of the center. And you didn't even have to knock down the courtyard walls to do it, she jokes. I always knew, right from the start, that it was going to be hard for you. But now my strong-willed little girl is growing into a strong-willed woman. Rowan, I am so proud of you. She speaks the words very distinctly, as if she's trying to burn them into my memory. And now you're finally going to get the freedom you deserve. But the price, I say. She shakes her head. I... We would have spent anything to help you have a normal life. Luckily, we can afford it. That's not what I mean. I know, she says softly. But there's always a price to every decision. I've paid a heavy price since the moment you were born. A price of guilt at the life I forced you to lead. And your father... She breaks off. And I notice for the first time that she has my habit of clenching her jaw in moments of extreme emotion. I don't think I've ever seen her upset until the past few days. She always seemed so calm, stable, so happy. Though I wonder now whether she kept her equilibrium at home to make things easier for the rest of us. What about my father? I ask sharply. It's nothing. Of course I can tell from her voice, from the play of muscles in her jaw, that it is the very opposite of nothing. We only have a little while longer, Mom. You owe me honesty. I see her wince a little. He hates me and I don't know why. Is it just because I'm an inconvenience? An obstacle on his path to greatness? Oh, sweetheart, she begins, and I can tell she wants to lie. But finally, she says, He doesn't hate you, Rowan. He hates himself. In a halting voice, she tells me what, her, what she herself only found out a few years ago, when my father was drunk and tired and weak and too crushed under the burden of his guilt to keep the secret any longer. When my dad found out that mom was pregnant without or with twins, he took it upon himself, without asking her, without telling her, to try to abort one of us. During what was supposed to be a routine prenatal check, he used a modified ultrasound device he created to try to destroy one of us. Did he pick his victim at random? Did he let chance decide whether Ash or I would be the first child, an only child, or no child at all? No. He wanted a son. When there were billions of people still crawling on the planet, men and women weren't always treated equally. Ash and I used to laugh about that when we studied ancient history together. Imagine anyone thinking women were lesser than men. Exactly. That is what everybody should believe. Sorry, I had to cut in. (laughs) Anyway, here in Eden, I believed that kind of prejudice didn't exist. Dear old dad, though. He wanted a child created in his own image. He wanted a boy to mold like him, to follow in his footsteps, to become a great doctor or politician. 
He aimed the ultrasound device. Call it what it is, Mom, I say bitterly. A weapon. I think of myself, huddled in the womb with ash, safe and warm, with my own father aiming a gun at my head. He aimed at, he aimed it at you, but something happened. He was almost incoherent when he confessed, and I never spoke with him about it again, but he said that you moved at the last second, that you were close to Ash, that, that you hugged him. You pulled him to you, and the sound beam hit Ash instead of you. Your father shut it off instantly, but some damage was done. It hit Ash in the chest. It injured his lungs. To my surprise, a tiny part of me almost feels sorry for the monster that is my father. For sixteen years he's lived with the guilt of the crime he committed. Every day he has to look at his ill son and think, that's my fault. But every day he has to look at his daughter and think, I tried to kill her and failed. I feel sick inside. There's one thing I can't understand. You forgave him for that? She's quiet for a long moment, steering the car around a tricky curve as we skirt an algae spire. No, she whispers at last, but it was best we stay together. She takes a deep breath. Rowan, I know you want to talk more about that, but it isn't relevant now. The past can't be changed, but it has to be understood. Listen carefully. I put something in your backpack. Something I found in the house long ago, around the time you were born. It... It changed the way I see things. It made me believe that... Bick! I see her eyes widen at the vista ahead. Oh, great earth, no! Ahead of us are the flashing blue and green lights of a green shirt checkpoint. We've just turned into one of the narrow radial roads that connect one ring to another. There are no side streets, and the road is barely wider than our car. We could turn around, but it would be blatantly obvious we were avoiding the checkpoint. They would be after us in a heartbeat. I can see the choices flashing across my mother's face. Foremost among them, a panicked urge to make a run for it. I don't know. If I was on foot and alone, I'd go for it. But cars aren't designed to go more than 25 miles per hour, and if we bailed, Mom couldn't run as fast as me. Plus, they'd easily find out who owned the car. Mom has an answer, though. Pretend you're asleep. Pull your hat over your face and curl up against the far door. I can probably talk my way through. She gives a weak chuckle. After all, I work for the center and I have friends in high places. Dropping my father's name would certainly help. How ironic that he might actually save my life this time. I have confidence it will work. I know that green shirts tend to respect anyone with a center ID. Still, I can feel myself tremble as I tuck myself into a ball. We cruise slowly toward the checkpoint. It is such a long way away that it feels foolish now to not have turned around. But I have to trust Mom's judgment. She talks to me in a low voice as we progress toward the barricades and flashing lights. The surgery center is in the back office of a modification parlor called Serpentine. I understand. That's a place where the people who believe they should have been born into into an animal body get their scales and claws and horns. It's in the next to last circle on the east side, an orange building, almost the color of your tunic. There's an electric fence around it, but third panel from the left on the southeast corner is turned off from three to four in the morning. You can climb over, go to the back door, and knock twice up high and three times down low. Can you remember that? Yes, I murmur into the sleeve that's curled over my face. And whatever happens, keep that backpack close. Keep it safe. Wait. Keep it safe? Not me safe? 
What? Shh, she cautions. There's something inside for you. Something that... Stay down. They're coming toward us. They have their weapons out, she gasps. Are those real guns? It's too late for me to ask what she means by that, but I have a terrible idea, I know. All green shirts carry weapons, the kind that slam you with an electric charge carried in plasma. They're usually called guns, but before the eco-fail I know there used to be more lethal things, also called guns, which shot metal bullets that ripped through human bodies. They've been outlawed in Eden. Could Mom possibly mean? I try not to move, but I know my rapid breathing will give me away if they look too closely. Try as I might, I can't calm my breath to sound like I'm sleeping. I listen as hard as I can. Step out of the car, ma'am, one barks right away in a deep, gruff voice. I can hear the smile in her voice, and I silently applaud her cool. I'm on center business, she says, and I'm sure she's tilting her head at him so he can more easily scan her eyes. My assistant and I were collecting some archival material from the outer circles, and I got turned around. Am I heading inbound now or out? He doesn't answer her question, but only says, Step out of the car. Mom's voice hardened slightly. I said I'm on center business. There are very valuable documents that needed to be... Step out, he says again flatly. Now. I can tell she's starting to sound desperate, but to the green shirt, she probably only sounds angry when she says, My husband is doctor... I hear the door open, and there's a tussle and scramble. What do you think you're doing, she shrieks. Do you know who I am? You're impeding center research. Quiet, the green shirt commands. I have orders to search every vehicle originating in the inner circles. No exceptions. Get your assistant out and scanned, and you can be on your way. She... She's asleep. I've made her work a double shift. Don't wake her, please. She's babbling now, and every nerve of my body yearns to spring to her aid. But I do what she told me, staying curled and helpless as a baby in the womb, even when I hear her say, Let go of me! Followed by a cry of pain. I stay immobile, following Mom's orders, trusting her to protect me, even when I hear someone grasp the, grasp the door handle on my side. A second later, my body is shifting as the door I'm leaning against is pulled open. I turn my grunt of alarm into a sleepy sound and keep my eyes closed. There's a crunch of rapid footsteps. Leave her alone! She's my assistant traveling under my pass! You have no rights! But I feel hands under my armpits, trying to haul me out. I want to kick to punch, to run, to scream, but all I can do is curl up, eyes closed. I hate being helpless. But Mom said... The hands let me go. Then comes a sound that makes my eyes fly open. A solid, metal, or meaty thwack. He hit Mom? I search through the darkness, my eyes taking a while to adjust. There's a figure standing and one crumpled to the ground. But when my vision revolves, I find Mom standing, panting, with the green shirt's handheld eye scanner in her hand. The green shirt himself lies in a heap at her feet, groaning softly. There's blood on his temple. And on the scanner. I've scraped my knees and falls, bloodied my fingers with a bad hold during a climb. But I've never ever seen blood resulting from violence. It chills me, even on a man I know to be my enemy. Shouts come from the checkpoint. Three or four other green shirts are running at us, though I can hardly see them beyond Mom's body. Her shoulders are squared. She looks impossibly resolute. Go! Mom hisses. I just stare at the fallen green shirt. She grabs me by the arms and shakes me. 
Run as fast and as far as you can. Get someplace safe, then tomorrow try to get back to the surgery center. Promise you'll run and not look back. Promise you won't make all of this for nothing. She ducks into the car, and then, when she comes out, thrusts the backpack against my chest. I love you, she whispers. Never forget that. Then she shoves me away from her so hard I stagger. Run! And I do. <clears throat> She's my mother, so I just do what she says. Isn't that what good daughters are supposed to do? Just like good mothers protect their children. At any cost. As I turn to run, I see her hurl herself, panther-like, at the first green shirt charging up. I freeze, uncertain. There's a flash of metal in the dim pre-dawn light. He's trying to shoot me? But as mom tackles him, the shot goes wide. The sound is deafening, echoing my echoing in my ears. There's another shot, like an explosion from much too close, and I hear something whistle sharply past my head. Real guns. Real, lethal guns. As I stand there, tense and poised and terrified, there's one more shot. I see Mom pirouette with the impact, a scarlet flower blossoming on her chest. Her eyes as they sweep past me are, are already dimming, but I see confusion, fear for me, the question, why are you still here? So I run. It's what I do best. I'm speed without thought, without emotion, without pain. Only muscle and breath and the surge of my body as I sprint away from my dying mother. Whew. Okay. That was chapter 11. Um, it's a heavy one. It's a hard one. I won't lie. Um, I, I definitely cried reading that for the first time. Now it's a little more easier to stomach, but I don't know. I definitely cried reading that the first time. Um, I'm gonna take a quick water break because my throat's a little sore, so, um, you can sit there and kind of just, I guess, let it sink in. I don't know. That's what I usually do. So, that was a lot, of course. A little quick recap. Um, Rowan's mom was going to take her to go get her implants, and then Rowan was going to end up going to her foster home. But as they're- whoa, a bunch of stuff just fell off my desk, but anyway. But as they're on their way there to the surgery place, they accidentally go into this green shirt checkpoint. And since they're looking for the second child, they have to, like, search vehicles and scan the eyes of whoever's in the vehicle. And so... Obviously, her mom is, like, desperate to make sure they don't scan Rowan's eyes. And then she starts fighting back against the green shirts. And then she tells Rowan to run. And then she gets shot. It's- it is a very heavy one. Um, but I'm sure you want to hear more. I'm sure you want to know what happens. So I'm gonna keep going. Um, so. Chapter 12. I run like a machine, unthinking, unfeeling, mercilessly fast and mercifully numb. All that matters is to move. I hardly even remember why. One leg in front of the other. Repeat. Even when the sound of gunfire behind me ceases, even when the shouting, bootsteps, and other sounds of pursuit fade away behind me, I still run at top speed. Because there's nothing else I can do. I used to run like this in my courtyard at home. 
the endless pounding of my feet driving away my frustrations, the exhaustion and anodyne. I never knew I was training, training to kill the ultimate hurt. I'm not running to escape the green shirts who are after me. I'm fleeing the look in my mother's eyes as she fell. The look that said she was happy to give her life so that I might live. It's too much. I don't want the burden of her sacrifice. I should have stayed with her. I should have died with her. But I still run. Away. Anywhere. I've lost all sense of direction. Wherever I am, the lights are dim, and it will be at least another two hours before the sun comes up. I can imagine I'm running in a world of nothing, a void. I can't even feel my own body anymore. And I don't feel it at first when, miles later, my foot hits something in the dark and my entire body twists violently as I go down hard. I'm up in an instant, running again, but within three steps I'm hopping. I've sprained my left ankle. I don't care! I have to keep going! I force myself to move, but every step is agony. I can feel the skin start to tighten as the swelling sets in. No! I can't let this stop me. Because if I can feel the pain of my injury, I'll be able to feel other kinds of pain, too. I clutch the nearest wall and hop through the darkness, putting my left foot gingerly down every few steps and wincing in agony. The pain shoots up my leg, seemingly all the way in my heart. I collapse in a dark doorway and the tears start to flow, huge heaving sobs. Now that I've stopped running, everything hurts. Everything is swollen and bruised. Before, I couldn't stop moving. Now I'm sure I will crouch in this doorway until the end of time. I'll sink into this dead earth and never rise again. I cry until I can't breathe, until my sobs turn to ragged, hiccuping gasps. And when I have nothing left inside of me, no tears, no strength, a strange sense of calm washes over me. From my recessed doorway shelter, I watch the sun come up. As the sliver of sky I can see between buildings starts to glow pink, I wrap my arms around my knees and simply watch the world wake up around me. I know the grief will return, will never truly leave, but for a moment, in my mental and physical exhaustion, I just experience the world. I wonder if this is what an animal feels like, in the moment, without regret or anticipation, simply being. I don't remember whether I saw anyone when I was running. It was all a blur. Now, as the world lightens, I begin to see a few people moving furtively through the streets. They look as if they want to get to their destination as far as possible, or as fast as possible, unobserved. The light reveals a place of dirt and squalor. Debris is tumbled across the streets, and the sidewalk is as rough and broken as if it had been upturned by an earthquake. It's like nothing I've ever seen, or even imagined. I can't retrace my steps, but something tells me I've found my way to one of the outer circles. I think maybe even the outermost circle. I clamp my jaw tight, press my lips together to keep them from trembling. This is the most dangerous place in Eden. Never mind about the green shirts chasing me. I've heard stories about the horrors of the outermost ring whispered when Mom thought Ash and I couldn't hear. If the green shirts catch me, I might possibly get lucky and be imprisoned for life. If even half the stories are true, here in the outermost circle, death is almost certain for all but the hardest, toughest residents. I try to remember everything Lark told me about the outer circles. Hers wasn't nearly as rough as this one as this one must be, but there had to be some similarities. On those two long nights together when we talked about everything under the stars, she told me about the various gangs, about how to move through the streets without being noticed. 
She even explained a bit about the subtle signs that might be painted or scratched on a door to say whether the house might offer work or food to the desperate. Other marks might warn people away from certain homes or, in or entire buildings. She told me about the signs people flashed to signal their affiliations, their intentions. But all this only came in passing. It was entertainment, conversation just an excuse to hear each other's voices. If only she told me more, in greater detail. If only I'd pay more attention to her words than to the curve of her mouth as she spoke. Now I have to focus on survival. It's easy to say I'll just sit here forever, but already I feel something stir inside me, some urge to act, to save myself. <clears throat> My mother's face keeps looming before me, her loving, worried eyes, but I push it back. I'll cry again later. Soon, I'm sure. But now I have to find a place to hide while I figure out how to survive the next hour. Or minute. Someone is crossing the dilapidated street, heading right toward me. A man? Or at last I think it is a man, based on his size. Is shuffling in a zigzagging way, tacking unsteadily from left to right as he moves. He's, walking bund He's a walking bundle of rags, a motley of faded, dirty cloth. His thick walking stick stumps at his side with each step. Should I get up? Should I run? I remember reading a passage about predators in an eco-history book. It said that predators couldn't resist chasing anything that ran. If you held your ground, a tiger might decide not to attack. If you turned and fled, it would pounce and snap your neck. So I sit in my sheltered nook as he makes his ungraceful way to me. As he gets closer, I can see that his face is caked in grime. On the left side, there's a curving smear of what might be dried blood, or else reddish clay. He wears cracked, black-framed glasses with smudged lenses. I can't tell if he's young or old. Up close, up close he smells terrible, like urine and moldy bread. Part of me recoils, but another part yearns to help him. But I have no money, no food. Nothing but my two flashy clothes and, I assume, a price on my head. I'm so fascinated, in an appalled way, by his repulsive appearance and smell that I realize too late I'm staring at him with wide open eyes. Bick! I'm done. I don't know what the center would pay for information leading to my capture, but it has to be more than this poor bum has ever seen before. He'll tell the first authority figure he sees, though I haven't seen any sign of a green shirt or other official, and the hunt will be on again. I know exactly what I should do. I should spring on him and, like I'm the predator, force him to the ground, beat him unconscious or worse, to give myself a chance to escape. I'm sure that's what life is like here out on the edge. I could do it, too. For all that I'm tired, I feel strong. Fear and sorrow combine to make my muscles bunch, my fists clench. I'll die for his legs, take him down, do whatever I have to. But I feel a sick ache in my gut. But before I can act, the man backs away one shuffling step. Blend in and wait, he mutters, at the same time using his stocky walking stick to scratch a number into the dust of the crumbling building that carpets the ground. Six, five, seven, two. He waits just a second and stomps it to oblivion, dust rising around his booted foot. He peels off his mended, dirty glasses and lets them fall casually by my feet. As he turns, I see... Or I think I see... His eyes flash in multi-hued hazel, bright green, and gold. Another second child! Well, not a child any longer. An old man, I think, though I can't tell how old beneath the filth. But he survived this long, 
If he can do it, I certainly can. I watch him shuffle unsteadily away. I want to run after him, to ask him questions, to beg him for answers. And then I think, is that my fate? My future? A scrabbling, unwashed existence on the fringe of society? He's gone before I can decide what to do. So I put on the glasses to hide my eyes and start to think. He's right. In this poverty-stricken circle, I stick out like a sore thumb. There are a few people on the streets now, passing in their furtive way without seeing me. In stark contrast to the people in my home circle, they're dressed in dark, sober colors, faded black and muddy hues. Even though I'm dusty, sweaty, and disheveled, 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 I don't know, my clothes are obviously bright and expensive. I feel a twinge of shame. I never realized my life was easy until now. I need to do something about my appearance right away. I might not have any money, but I envision myself being robbed for my clothes alone, stripped and abandoned on the street. Or not abandoned, which would be far worse. Can I get a change of clothes somehow? I wouldn't know where to begin. I'll just have to dirty up these clothes and hope the costly sheen doesn't show. If only I was in the pre-fail days, it would be easy. Back then, there was real dirt. Here, though the street is filthy enough, it's all building dust, food waste, and mysterious oozy puddles. I scratch up dust from my doorway and rub it into my orange-gold sleeves. Then I add some to my sweat and tear-soaked face. I pull my hair out of its braid and tug the strands over my face. I know it isn't enough. Now, instead of looking like an inner circle girl who's lost, I just look like an inner circle girl who's crazy. But it will have to do. The big question at the moment is, can I trust the bum? He gave me glasses to hide my eyes, but what about that number he scratched into the dust? It must be a building number. Or maybe a code? But to what? In any case, I can't stay here all day. I'm tucked away and unobtrusive, but with the sun coming up, people will definitely notice me, and attention is the last thing I need. To find shelter, I'll have to venture out into the open. Look like you're not afraid. That's what Lark told me when I was nervous about walking among the poor, the street people, the gangs in her home circle, which seems so civilized now. Walk like you belong here. Don't make eye contact, but don't look down either. Own the space you move in. So I gather my confidence and step out. In the growing light of day, the place looks like a war zone. How can anyone live like this? The idea that has been nagging at me for days suddenly solidifies. How can this poverty exist in Eden? The principle of this survival city has always been sustainability. They're willing to kill me and any second child to keep the population in check so there will be enough food and water and other resources for everyone. Why on earth, then, do some people have so much, some so little? It makes no sense. The inner circle people don't need exotic nightclubs, decadent food, and luxury clothes. If they had a little less, the people out here would have a little more. Around me I see broken windows, skinny children with empty bowls outstretched, begging for a scrap. There's a crater on the road that looks like a bomb fell. There are no clean bots, no security bots. Why doesn't the eco-pan divide the resources equally? That's capitalism for you, sweetie. That's how it works. Eat the rich. Anyway. <laughs> I'm distracted from my thoughts by a group of people moving purposefully along the street. 
There are six or seven, all dressed in bone white decorated with a dotting with a dotted pattern. They look so clean against the grime that I'm immediately relieved. Until they come closer and I see that what I took f took for abstract polka dots are really splashes of blood. It is bright and fresh. Lost, little girl? One of them asks in a tone of slimy concern. Found now, a woman says, and they all laugh at the weak witticism. They start to crowd around me. What do you have in your pockets? She doesn't have pockets. Must have something good hidden somewhere, one says with sly insinuation. Let's have a look. I feel a hand on me and something snaps. I punch the closest one in the nose, sending out new decorative sprays of blood and hurting my own hand far more than I anticipated. An elbow takes down another one, and that method feels much better to me. For a second, they hardly react. They must not expect an inner circle girl to be capable of much. Some of them are even laughing at their comrades' injuries. They're that confident that I'm not a threat. I'm not, but neither am I their plaything to rob or torment. I do what I do best. I run. They must have had a long night. I smell alcohol and synth, and synth mask. They make a token show of chasing me down, but even with my ankle screaming, my gait gimpy, I lose them within half a mile. I feel the tears starting again, only this time they're tears of frustration. Is this my life now? Being alternately accosted by green shirts and thugs until one of them finally wins? Isn't this supposed to be a nearly perfect society? A preserve for the last of the humans? Why are humans friendly and happy and easygoing and rich near the center and trying to assault one another out here? Someone is approaching. Get the hell away from me, I scream, only to see them cower and slink away. It's a middle-aged woman with a bundle under her arm. She wasn't a threat, was she? And I treated her like a monster. What's happening to me? I need to find the building that Ragged Second Child told me about. If that's in fact what he meant. Most of the buildings aren't marked. A few have numbers with gaps where some have fallen off. Others have numbers spray-painted on them, half obscured by graffiti champ championing one gang or another. That one says 5994 in dark green paint. I wander until I find another. 6003. I'm headed in the right direction, at least. It is a small victory, and my heart feels the tiniest bit lighter. But what awaits me there? An ambush from another gang, or center officials, or the strange old bum himself? Maybe he makes a habit of luring lost girls. People look at me, either in curiosity or hostility or evaluation, and I glare back. Finally, though, I see the building he must have been talking about. It is gray and squat, and crowded. I smell food, and my stomach gives a growl. How is it that my body still thinks something like hunger is important? It's a charity house, dispensing food to the poor. In other words, to every outermost circle resident who isn't strong enough to take or keep what they need. Barefoot children emerge with flatbreads smeared with a, bl with a bland but nutritious basic algae paste. I think of the huge variety of flavors available in my home circle. The food there tastes, so they assure us, exactly like pre-fell food, even if it isn't actually made from fruits and vegetables. Here, it seems, taste doesn't matter. The children wolf their bread and algae down as if they're worried someone might snatch it away. Then, on the periphery, someone, just, someone does just that. A scrawny girl cries as a bigger boy yanks her dole out of her hands. 
She looks down miserably at the crumbs she managed to salvage in her fist. Suddenly, the bum is there, moving swiftly through the throng, his motley rags flapping dramatically. No one steady, no one steady shuffling this time. He whacks the boy across the shoulders with his cane. The boy drops the bread and runs. It lands Algy side down. The girl obviously wants to pick it up and eat it anyway, but the bum takes her hand and gently pulls her back toward the charity house. He's gotten a new pair of glasses since our meeting. With his free hand, he raises them, flashes me a wink of his bright golden eye, and heads inside. I'll mingle with the crowd and wait for him to return. He has to be able to help me. I watch Mother standing on the door line with children who scamper and cling and laugh and cry. All the things children do when they're bored and waiting. Though the mother's clothes are worn and torn, though there is despair in the back of their eyes, when they look at their children, they're exactly like my mother. They're so full of love and care and worry. They'll do anything for their little ones. My eyes get hot. My throat tightens as two small children play tagger on my legs. The mother examines me curiously, but doesn't seem to condemn me. She calls her kids over and gives me a little smile before turning away. Apparently, I'm not a threat. None of her concern. I relax just a bit. Which, I'm learning, is generally a bad idea. A murmuration goes through the crowd, and it starts to close in around me. I don't know what's happening, but they move like one entity, a multi-celled animal with a mysterious but frightening purpose. I'm being closed in by a wall of people. No one is looking at me, but I can feel the heat of their bodies as some twenty people subtly move near to me. Oh, somebody's outside my room. I hate that. I really hate that. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> then I hear the voice, loud and commanding. We're looking for an inner circle girl. Have you seen anyone who doesn't belong? They're trapping me. They're holding me for an easy capture, for the reward. I shove my way through, shouldering mothers and children out of the way, and break from the crowd. There! A green shirt shouts, and I'm limping away again, a slow and painful half-run. I look quickly over my shoulder. Behind me, the people move once more, like a school of fish, a flight of starlings, to get between me and the two pursuing green shirts. It is so smooth it looks accidental, circumstantial. The green shirts shout at them to move and force their way through after me. By now, though, I have a decent head start. Then I hear a bullet hit the wall beside me. Without meaning to skid, without meaning to, I skid to a brief stop and look at the groove it gouged. That isn't an electrical charge. That's a real solid bullet that will tear apart my flesh. There's nowhere for me to go but in a straight line. The green shirts will have a clean shot at me. Another bullet streaks by my side and I dodge. <sighs> Can the person outside my room leave, please? <laughs> I'ma just give it a sec. Did they leave? I don't know, I can't tell. Anyway. <laughs> Might as well be a difficult target. They need to go away. My bad. I just don't like doing this in front of people.
God, can't they go away? <laughs> I guess I'll just continue because clearly they're not moving. Anyway. Bic, isn't there a place to turn? There are no alleys, no open doors. This person is driving me crazy. <laughs> They're driving me nuts. Anyway. Hold your fire, someone shouts. The voice is familiar. I hear feet found pounding far behind us, but not far enough. They're closing in. I'm too tired to run any faster. Oh my god, go away! I'm giving it a second. <laughs> Again. Okay. <laughs> I'm too tired to run any faster. Before long, I won't be able to run any farther. My side cramps as if a claw were gripping my ribs. My swollen ankle throbs, and I can hardly catch my breath. I have to get out of this open space. Finally, I see a little side road between two buildings. I dodge sharply in and stagger against the walls I run painfully on. But the walls get closer together. The road narrows into a dead end filled with piles of stinking garbage. I whirl around, but it's too late. The two green shirts are blocking the entrance. One of them levels his weapons at me. I press against the wall, fall to my knees, curl up in a ball, and hope the end will be quick. There's the sound of a tussle, a thump. I look up to see one green shirt standing, the other sprawled at his feet. The one who is standing holds a gun, but he's pointing at the unconscious green shirt on the ground, not at me. I recognize the burly young blonde green shirt from my first venture into the city. Rook, was that it? He looks scared. Of me? That can't be. Could it be for me? He beckons, but I stay cowering in the garbage. Come on, he whispers urgently. The others will be here soon. Cautiously, I rise and approach. His face looks so young. It doesn't match his burly body and menacing uniform. Do you have a safe place to hide? He asks. I shake my head. Oh my god, I just lost my spot. Oh, I shake my head. He looks down the road in the direction we came from. Where is he? He asks aloud to himself. Look, I can't take care of you. It's going to be hard enough covering this up. He gestures with his gun to his unconscious comrade. Just go and hole up somewhere, but come back to the breadline after dark. He'll find you. Who will find me? I choke out, completely confused. Why are you helping me? Apparently, the, answer's, the answer to both questions is the same. My younger brother. His brother is another second child? Before I can ask any more questions, he curses and hisses. Run! I see other green shirts approaching, marching swiftly in tactical formation. I stagger off, clutching my aching side, while Rook squares himself on the line between me and the other green shirts so they can't fire at me. He fires, though, and he misses deliberately each time. I turn toward the only place the green shirts might not follow me. The wasteland beyond Eden. Dun dun dun. And that is the end of chapter 12. This episode is the longest I've even recorded, I think, probably because somebody was outside my room and I felt incredibly awkward reading aloud while they're right there. 
But anyway, boom. That was chapter 12. A lot happened in the past two episodes. Um, this is gonna be nice to recap next time. Um, also, to put it in perspective, we are about halfway through the book already. So we're moving at a fairly quick pace, although this book is really not that long. But we're moving at a fairly quick pace. So just to put it into a into perspective we're now halfway through also the chapters are fairly long so with other books it might only take me like 20 minutes to read two chapters but with this one the chapters are very long and there's less of them so but anyway i hope you enjoyed today's episode today's episode was a lot it was a lot to take in we had a lot of plot twists and stuff um whether good or bad, but mostly bad. But anyway, um, hope you enjoyed. Remember, tomorrow I will be uploading an episode at around this time, so around 3.30. Um, that's what I do every day. I always put out episodes at around that time when I get out of school, although today's Sunday, so I don't even have school, but whatever, not the point. Um, so make sure to look out for episodes on a daily basis. Um, tomorrow I'll be reading chapters two, no, 13? Yeah, 13 and 14. So stay tuned for that to figure out what happens and I'll see y'all tomorrow. Bye!